Wow, look out and see some friends. As my brother said a while ago, I'm being careful. I'm not calling them old friends, <laughs> but friends for a long time. Some of them are old friends, right, Joe? I knew Joe and Marty, I think back before I was married to Melanie, as I was dating her, and I would come to the Chattanooga area, and he and my father-in-law, future father-in-law at that time, were good buddies, and Joe would be leading singing and hearing his voice again this morning and leading in a prayer and seeing so many of you, and some maybe I've just barely met for the first time, or not quite met, but it's, it's so nice to be here with you. It's my privilege to get to be here and to have an opportunity to share God's Word with you. And so uh, we're looking at the book of John this morning, and uh, I'm happy that uh, I get a chance to uh, have a moment just to share with you a few things. Now I'm going to go back and pave the way of what we did in Bible class So you can see where we're headed in the next part. But John, as he writes his gospel, writes at a different time period than Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. Enough time has passed by the time that John is writing the gospel. People are pretty aware of who Jesus is. But by this time, they've also gotten off track on some things about Jesus, about his nature for one thing, because... They thought he just came, or at least some of them, some of the Christians thought he came in just the spirit. And so he and Paul really had to wrestle with some of those things and writing letters and things. And as John writes his gospel, he will say in verse 14 about Jesus, he'll say the word became flesh. He's he's emphasizing he became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the other gospel writers also talked about the humanity of Jesus about his birth and all of those things and how he lived and had brothers and sisters, etc. But uh, just the focus that John is dealing with is of a different nature because he's trying to correct things that have gone wrong within the church, some bad teachings or influence from the world as Christians kept coming into the church. But I want to talk about verse 5 for just a minute to kind of pave the way because there's a, a key word in there in the original language that could be translated either one way or another. Speaking about Jesus, John says, he describes him as light, and says, and the light, that's Jesus, shines in the darkness. I'm going to read the New King James to start with. It says, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And we pointed out in the Bible class, depending on the translation that you're using, It might say something along the darkness did not comprehend it, or it might say the darkness didn't overcome it or apprehend it. That is, it couldn't stop it. Totally different in the concept of the translation, but as we mentioned earlier, uh, like in any language, the Greek language also, sometimes words could mean one thing or it could mean another. And usually the context will help you to understand exactly what's pointed out. But this one, you could go either way with the meaning behind it. The word, the light, now that's shining in the darkness, people couldn't comprehend what Jesus was up to. 
didn't understand what God was up to, didn't understand why he would come in the flesh, couldn't comprehend that God would even think about doing such a thing, couldn't comprehend that he'd go to the cross. Why would Jesus do those things? Why would he leave heaven? But when he got here and he did his mission, they couldn't overcome it either. And see, what I think God is saying here is not we've got to try to figure out one or the other, but he's telling you a word that can be applied both ways because God intends it to be implied both ways. He says what he means, and he means what he says. So you're not going to comprehend, or at least some of the people didn't comprehend everything that God was up to. And so when when you're dealing with that and you're talking to people, not everybody's going to grasp it. Some will. And some don't care to, and so they're not going to comprehend it. But they're not going to overcome it. And I'm happy and confident and, and excited about the fact that not the trials that I deal with and not the things going on in the world and everything else, nothing is going to defeat God in His work. And so that is what I see happening as you look at any of the stories, but particularly we're going to look at John and see a couple of the events that took place in the life of Jesus that John highlights that the other Gospels don't mention. And one of those we talked about this morning in chapter 3 was a man named Nicodemus. And after the class, uh, Carl and I were talking. Carl said, he said, now, he's mentioned one other time. And I said, well, twice in the book of John. There's a time where he's discussing with some of the other religious leaders about Jesus. And, and Nicodemus is taking up for his defense. And the rest of the Pharisees are upset about it. And they, Search for yourselves. You're not going to find anybody like that. They just wrote him off. And then one other time is at the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, when Joseph... Joseph of Arimathea, as Matthew describes, goes in to ask for the body of Jesus. Nicodemus is there too, John says. So you've got a wealthy man named Joseph, and we don't know about Nicodemus' financial means, but we know he's a ruler of the Jews, and a ruler of the Pharisees for that matter. And so Nicodemus, early in his life, sees Jesus, or at least early in Jesus' ministry, and he's sticking with the teachings of Jesus throughout. And at the very end, he comes out boldly to be a disciple of Jesus and a follower. So that's chapter 3 in the book of John. Because we're seeing that though the Pharisees didn't comprehend what was going on, nor could they stop him. And they tried ferociously. And we're going to look at that and see that in the rest of this. So... We talked about chapter 4, the Samaritan woman this morning in the class, and we talked about Nicodemus in chapter 3. And the uniqueness, as you look at it, how the two different characters are so different in, in who they are and what they represent in life. Nicodemus, who is so sincere and a follower of God, even to the point that he separated himself from the thinking of the rest of the Pharisees and would go to Jesus by night when nobody else was watching to talk to him, to get to know from him what was going on. What a noble character. And then we've got a woman at a well who's messed up her life, in the Samaritan woman. And she's had five different husbands, Jesus points out. And he says, and the one you're now living with is not even your husband. So you've been in and out of relationships and pledged along the way, and now you've just thrown it all away and you're just, you're just shacking up with whoever. And the two characters, both of them, get Jesus' attention. And sometimes we, we can't comprehend that. 
how could some of these people in the world really get God's attention? These people that, that are so different and so ungodly in every way that they're striving to be ungodly. And, and yet, they've got God's attention. Just as much as the, the person who is as devout and serious in, in their faith is, God wants both of them with Him in heaven. And so the light comes in the world, but the world couldn't figure it out. Why would God do that? But they couldn't stop him either. And that's the point of what's going on. So um, what I'd like to do then is to go to another chapter, another event, another character who who meets Jesus along the way. And and this is found in chapter 8 of John. I like this story. And I like the one in chapter 9, if we get a chance to, to cover all that. Verse 53 of John chapter 7 kind of has a, a situation where Jesus has been with his apostles. And then it says, and then everyone went to his house. So kind of, that's that's the end of the event. But verse 1 of chapter 8, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is up on a little hillside. Olive trees growing around everywhere. Today, the olive trees of the Mount of Olives are still there on that hillside. Some of the trees that are growing there have been grafted from first century olive trees that were there when Jesus and his apostles were there. And they would go there to pray. Massive old trees and some newer ones and people are meticulously taking care of them because it's a special place down through the ages. Always has been. And as you're up in the in, in, in the Mount of Olives, you can look down the hillside and straight up and you can see the wall of Jerusalem. Not that far away. Just a short distance. It's real easy to see. And so here's Jesus up on the Mount of Olives and he's looking at Jerusalem, which very much is the essence of God's people. Not as big an area as you could imagine it being. And so here is on the Mount of Olives. And then verse 2 says, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Now you might not notice the word again within the text there. What John is telling you is this has been something that Jesus has been doing for a while. It's a habit. And, and people are already in temple, the temple, and they're gathered together, well, Jesus is going to be here again. And, and we're going to be hearing some other good lessons from Jesus. And we're going to know some more, and we're going to build our strength up, and it's going to be better than we've ever had before with the Pharisees, who wouldn't comprehend what Jesus was up to. So we're seeing the change of what's going on. And Jesus sits down, and he teaches them. Now, as you go through the story, you'll see that there's a woman, verse 4, who is caught in adultery, and then John says, in the very act of it. That is the most double X rated scene you could picture. Don't want to picture it, actually. But nonetheless, this is how she's caught. Red-handed, you might use the term. And, and so, she is drugged out of the situation. Maybe they threw a sheet on her. I don't know. But I know it's embarrassing for her. And she's caught And they've caught her. And where'd the guy go? 
<laughs> Doesn't say, does it? Why did the guy get to get away? Was he faster than the rest of them? I doubt it. Now here's what I'm seeing in this whole scene. Let's read on a little further and I'm going to back up and tell you about it. So they bring the woman who's caught in the very act of adultery. Verse 5, it says, and they say to him, Now, Moses in the law commanded us that we should take such and stone her. But what do you say? And they look at Jesus. And here's this woman, like the most worthless object on earth, just thrown down at Jesus' feet in front of all these people, embarrassed as can be. And these Pharisees are just snarling at her and looking at Jesus in just the same hatred and bitterness because they can't comprehend what he's up to. They do know one thing about Jesus, and that's why they think they've caught him. They're testing him because they know that he loves everybody. And so in order to love her, he's going to have to go against the Old Testament law that Moses wrote. So they're thinking, we've captured him, we've caught him in a fix. Now here's what I think. John doesn't write it, but I'm thinking as Jesus is coming and going in and out of the temple, and they're aware of what's going on, it is probably very well aware too, in some areas, if you go to certain neighborhoods, you're going to catch men and women together doing what they ought not to be doing. And they know where this woman hangs out. They know what her lifestyle is like. And they know they can catch her. And so they plotted way ahead of time. We're going to go down to her house where she hangs out with whoever comes by. And we're going to catch her and we're going to drag her out when Jesus comes in tomorrow. They planned this whole thing out. They got it. Red-handed. They're going to catch Jesus and they're going to prove to him. See, it's a trap that they've set way ahead of schedule. And so they let the guy go and maybe he's part of the system. You go down tonight, you pay and you do whatever. You get to go free. We're just going to grab her. And we're going to make an example of her and especially Jesus in front of all of his followers. And we're going to put him to shame. That's their thinking, you see. And so when they get him down there, they, they throw him and they say, what do you say? Verse 6, and it says, they, they said this, testing him, that they might have something which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the ground with his finger, as though he didn't hear. If I stood there and started writing here on the carpet very long, you'd get up and leave, because it's boring. But they're waiting for Jesus to answer, and they think that Jesus can't answer. And so he's got to really think about this a bit. And he's, he's piddling in the ground and stalling for time. Now here's the other part out of it. Not only do they think they've caught him in a trap that they've contrived, but take a step back and watch Jesus as he's been going in and out of Jerusalem. Mount of Olives, down to Jerusalem. And he says to himself, Today they're setting a trap for me. I know they're setting a trap for me. And I've got a trap for them. Because they need to understand that the trap they set for me is just going to expose their stupidity, 
their understanding of not comprehending me, nor the power of being able to overcome me, like John writes about. So he's got them in the trap as they're setting a trap they think against him. You see what's going on? He knows what's happening the whole time. And as he's walking down there and they throw this woman in front of his feet, he already knows what's going to happen. And the trap is really set for them as they thought they were going to expose Jesus by something he didn't know. Ha! And that's what I love about this situation. So Jesus writes down, stalls a bit to really get the anxiousness built up in the people. And it says here that as he's doing this, verse 7, that they continued asking him. They're just badgering. Come on, Jesus. Come on now. Let's answer me. Do you hear me? We got you, don't we, Jesus? And then he raises up. He who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone first. And there's silence. They hadn't gone thinking about that. They couldn't comprehend that God would really come around and talk about law and love within the same context. It somehow it just didn't mix. And they couldn't comprehend the fact that nobody would say that they don't have some kind of sin. And Jesus had them. They all needed forgiveness was the point. But they couldn't comprehend that because they're busy focused on the woman and on Jesus. And they never saw their need for Jesus. They couldn't comprehend that, nor could they comprehend that God would even think about coming down to this earth. And they're still confused about all that. Nor could they apprehend Him and what He was up to. They couldn't stop Jesus. So here they are, this whole tribe of people gathered around, and the multitude's there, and the crowd's beginning to build in this area, and boy, they think they've got Him, and they couldn't stop Him. And as you're looking at what's going on, it says He stooped and He wrote... Uh, bent down the ground, he rode again, and they left. And I'm not sure of the old implications why it says this, but it says it started with the oldest and then went to the youngest. I think the youngest ones just didn't quite figure out as quickly as the oldest ones that they've got a problem too. Then he turns to the woman, he says, woman, where are your accusers? He didn't ask her, are you a sinner or not? He's just asking where her accusers are. Now he's setting the stage for her. There are none, Lord. Now he could accuse her, but he decides to forgive her. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. It wasn't that he didn't say that that she did. It wasn't that he said she didn't have sin, but she was going to get away free. Same thing as the thief on the cross who everybody understood that he he shouldn't be there at all in comparison to Jesus. Jesus shouldn't be there, rather, is what I want to say. But, but he's there alongside the thief. And the thief gets forgiven. So here's the situation, what's going on. This individual that is so much different than the rest of the Pharisees who shouldn't get to go free, who should be condemned, is in God's sight just as important as the Pharisees are. 
if they could ever grasp that. But they couldn't comprehend, but they weren't going to stop Jesus and what he was up to. Now chapter 9. I love this chapter. This is a man that's born blind, as John's writing about. John does not write about, most of the time, things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke writes about. So these events and these characters and these circumstances and all are true to life. They're actual events, but somehow they got left out until John writes about them. Verse 1, now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Because he's born blind. They got a doctrine in their mind that a lot of people believe today. That every time there's something going on wrong in a person's life, it's because God is striking them because they have sin. That's the way Job's friends felt when they went to talk to Job and they saw his misery and his problems and all the things he was going on. And instead of saying, Job, can we bring you some food? Can we stop and pray with you? They, they associated with him for a while and then they started accusing him. You've got this evil sin and they think it's a bad doctrine. It's not correct. Now, sometimes sin will bring consequences of misery. But it's not always that God is striking them. It just sometimes it does. But in this situation, it wasn't that way. So when the disciples asked the question about who's sinning, they automatically stopped thinking about the blind man. You know, it's amazing. They're walking with Jesus. They've seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen him heal. They've seen him do all kinds of things. Now, as they come upon this guy that's born blind, why isn't their first question, here's another person we can heal, Jesus? Instead, not comprehending what's going on, they start thinking about his sin and not theirs. Isn't it amazing how we are? Something about human personalities, I guess. So Jesus answers them, verse 3. It says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Doesn't mean they weren't sinners, but it's not about this situation. But this happened that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now later on you'll find out that this man's well up in age. And he's been born blind. I can't imagine this man not having gone through much of his life, especially in his earlier career, asking himself the question and asking God the question, why am I blind? What did I do wrong? Why is God doing this to me? Now, you've never asked that question, have you? When something doesn't happen right in your life, it's oftentimes we say, but God, what, what did I do wrong? Matter of fact, I've been trying real hard to do all these things. I've even worked harder than this. I've prayed more. I've read more. I've done all these things. Why is this happening? The story's not over yet. The story wasn't over yet for this guy. 
God's got one more thing at least to do in his life in order that he be glorified. And so, as Jesus goes along, verse 6, it says, after he said these things, I skipped over a couple verses because we want to move on with the story and the lesson here. He said these things, and then he spat on the ground, and he made clay with his saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with his clay. Now, none of you all have ever spit on the ground, have you? I know guys have. I've been out on construction. I've been out in the military. I've been out on, in, in the jungles, and we spit on the ground, guys do. And, and ladies, maybe ladies don't do those things. But when you spit on the ground, it becomes kind of gunky mud. And it's read the few times or the many times that I've spit on the ground, I've never stopped to play in it, okay? It's kind of, okay, it's, you go on and leave it. A part of this is realizing that the blind man is blind, but he's not deaf. And he knows what it sounds like when people spit on the ground. Likely people have walked by him before because he can't see him, and they spit on the ground. And he hears it, and he knows what it is because he's probably spit on the ground. So he understands the sound of it. He knows what's going on. And he knows the product that it happens when you spit on the ground. It becomes kind of gunky, whatever. But then he all of a sudden feels this mud being put on his eyes and he knows the background of it all. This is spit and mud mixed together on my eyes. And all of a sudden he's thinking, why is this happening? But I also want you to see, here's the Son of God, the Son of God, playing with mud from his spit in the ground. And the people are watching what's going on. And they're going, I've seen men spit before, but I've never seen Jesus spit on the ground and play in it. But then he picks up the mud and he puts it on his eyes. Now you know the rest of the story. That as he does this, he tells the man, verse 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And says that, it's translated scent. That's what Siloam means. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Therefore, his neighbors, and I've always wondered, why do they have to just get involved in this? Because they didn't comprehend what was going on. It's part of God's plan, but they don't understand it. But as the Pharisees get involved in this story, and likely you've read this before, and they interrogate this man who's been born blind, and they're trying every way they can to defeat the fact that a miracle's been performed and they can't stop him. They realize they can't comprehend, nor can they stop Jesus. They can't overcome him. I deal so much in my own life and have in people's lives who struggle with trying to figure out why is God doing this in my life? Why is he letting this happen? Why do I have these problems? Why am I hurting? I'm trying everything I can to do the very best. And all I know is that in the process, Satan wants to overcome you. And when you hang in there with Jesus and you get to the very last part of the story, they can 
be victorious with Jesus and will not be overcome. And that's what happens in this man's life. We sing a a song, Amazing Grace. And then it says, I once was born, or excuse me, I once was dead and now I'm alive, was blind and now I see. That one little segment comes from this story here. There's there's just something about the nature of this guy. When he gets healed by Jesus and he gets thrown by his neighbors in front of the Pharisees because they're scared about what's going on. They've already heard that the Pharisees are upset about Jesus. They can't comprehend what's going on. They can't stop him, but they're trying their best. They're going to throw anybody out of the synagogue that even begins to talk about Jesus. And so they know this. And so here's this man, and he creates a difficulty, and they bring this guy before Jesus, uh, before the Pharisees. And so as they're doing this, the Pharisees are wanting to know what's going on. So they ask the man, verse 13 down to verse 16. And he answers verse 16. He says, so he says, this man's not from God, the Pharisees say, because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others are saying, well, how can a sinner do such things? So they... They're back and forth in understanding what's happening here. So verse 18, because they're trying to avoid recognizing that a miracle actually has performed, maybe it's not the, really the blind man. So they call the parents in concerning this. And they call the parents in, verse 19, and the parents say, or they say to him, is this your son who's been born blind? How is it now he sees? And parents answer, well, this is our son. But that he's been born blind, yes, but by what means he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. It's amazing. They recognized it's their son. They recognized he can see them. It's the first time mama is looking at the son in his eyes and he's looking back. I have a little four-month-old granddaughter. And when she was first born, we were trying to get her attention. But what's so cool now is her neck muscles work, and she looks here, and she looks at you in her eyes. She'll smile at you. She's got my attention. She's got my wife's attention. And and the boys that are older, brothers, and just everything, so neat to watch this, to be able to see into the eyes of the child, and the child to see you back. Now here's mama looking into the eyes of her son for the first time, looking into his eyes. And she totally rejects him. I don't know anything about it. Take him away. She couldn't comprehend. Likely she also, during her life, asked God the question, Why was my son born blind? Why did we do this? What did I do wrong, God? Maybe she had some kind of sin and she was feeling guilty out of all this and worried about all this. And now the moment has totally changed around and she can't comprehend what God's up to. All she can see is fear because she's going to be cast out of the synagogue. So the Pharisees Get the blind man back in front of him again. Verse 24, you give God the glory. He'd been trying to. But they want a different answer. 
We know this man's a sinner. Now the man that's born blind, who has no accreditation, doctrinally, university-wise, studies, or anything else, who has been his entire life sitting out on the edge of the temple begging for alms, now stands before the elite spiritual crowd. In verse 25, he says, whether this man's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know. I was blind and now I see. You're not going to stop him. You're not going to take away from me what God has done. Now there is basically the goal of what Satan is trying to do in your life. When you see what's happening, and you see all the things that are working against you, it's all of Satan's attempts to destroy the faith that you know ought to be there. You don't comprehend why you're dealing with everything that you deal with, but you understand one thing, that God makes a difference in your life, and if you hold on to that, you've got everything. And that can't be taken from you. The story goes back and forth about this. And so they wrestle with it. And man, again in verse 30, when they start denying that Jesus is anything from God, he says, this is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he's come from. Yet, no one has ever opened the eyes of a blind. Like, duh. Where did you get your accreditation, Pharisees? If you'd stop and think about what God is up to and look plainly at what He's saying, you'd see the truth of the matter. The world is like that sometimes. So as the story ends, it ends with Jesus now talking to the Pharisees about the blind man. And He's calling them now blind because they wouldn't comprehend but they don't overcome it, and the story continues on throughout the rest of the New Testament and throughout the ages. You know, we take the Lord's Supper, and we're about to do that, I guess, shortly here. And we're participating in something that the Son of God started 2,000 years ago. He sat down with His disciples it was the Passover feast that it started out being. But he took bread and he broke it, Matthew says. John says. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 11. He took bread and he broke it and he gave it to him. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup and he passed it to them. And he said, drink this. This is my blood. And you know what it represents. It represents what Jesus did with his body and his blood the two elements there together. Now, why he chose that, I'd say because of simplicity. But he chose it nonetheless for us to do every Sunday. And since that day that Jesus instituted it, his disciples have been taking this every Sunday around the world. And we're going to keep on doing it. And it's never been stopped. We take it as a memorial to remember what Jesus did. And when Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, 
we drink that blood and we uh, that wine and we think about the blood of Jesus and we understand this is a memorial and we're going to do it until he returns. White Oaks is a small congregation. But you can't stop the faith that's going on here. Amen. You hold on to what you've got. For wherever you are, and when Satan starts knocking at your door and trying to beat it down, you say, not here. I don't know what's going on. I don't like what's happening sometimes in life. But Jesus still takes care of me. I was blind and now I see. And you're not taking that from me. You're not overcoming here. We've got God on our side. We've got a son who became man in order to give us life. And no one can take that from us. You stand strong with Jesus. You live for Him. And in spite of everything that doesn't seem to be going right right now, it'll get resolved. God will be glorified and we'll overcome with Him. Maybe you're struggling and just need some prayers right now. And I understand that because... Or life just really... Sometimes the the problems come in with the truckloads that just keep dumping it on top of you. And you just need some prayers. Some encouragement of fellow members that also understand what it's like to struggle. And they're ready to pray for you. Put their arms around you and care for you. Just like Jesus would do. And say, I know what it's like. I'm dealing with the two. We're going to make it together with God's help. Nothing's impossible. Or maybe you're just right on the edge of becoming a Christian. You know what it's about. You know you need to do this. You need to give your life to Him. You need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're ready, we're ready to help on that. We extend an invitation. It really belongs to Jesus. That He came to give you life and give you light. And if you're ready to do that, then make it known. Come down front while we sing this song.